In this episode of Smart Humans, we talk with Logan Allen, managing director and founder at Fin Capital. He tells us how chess is the most important game that helped him figure out how to get smarter when he was growing up. He gives us his point of view on fintech and how the SaaS Plus model is the one to focus on in B2B. And he tells us that really prices have compressed by one third and his three trends for the future in fintech. He also ends by giving us three companies that we should look out to invest into. Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, and welcome back for another episode of Smart Humans. I'm excited for today's guest. We have Logan Allen joining us. He is managing partner and founder of Fin Capital. Thank you, Logan, for coming today. Thanks a lot for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So we always start with the same first question, which is, how did you get into alternative investments? How did it even all start for you? Sure. Well, I started my career actually in management consulting. And while I was there, I was spending a lot of my time uh, in the early aughts uh, with large hedge funds, private equity firms, and so forth, trying to help them with technology. So that could have been trading systems, market data, uh, quantitative uh, capabilities, and so forth. And so actually got to know the alternatives world through a similar seat to where I am now, which is in, is the technology aspects and the operational aspects of that. I ended my corporate career, as I call it, at Invesco, um, where we had you know pretty significant alternative holdings, although it was more of a long only uh, equity and, and mutual fund shop at the end of the day. Uh, and so, you know, really started in the technology aspects that ended up at a large asset manager, got to see it from the manufacturing side of the world, so to speak, uh, and then left Invesco uh, to start my entrepreneurial journey uh, initially at SoFi. Then uh, was working pretty actively on companies like Zambato and Adapar, which were you know clearly very focused on the alternative space. Again, taking that that technology lens, and so that's that's where my journey started. And so, if you were building technology or evaluating technology uh, to be used by an alternative asset manager, you better understand the asset class on a pretty technical level. Uh, and so that was a great training ground, so to speak, for the way I think about the world now in terms of portfolio construction, uh, managing risk, uh, understanding duration, and so forth. Uh, and so that's how I got my, my start. And a lot of that sounds like it's been exposure to like company investing into stocks, uh, things of that nature, whether it was public earlier and then into private. Have you had much experience with the other areas in alts, whether it's like crypto or art, NFTs, debt, real estate, collectibles? Yeah. So on the collectible side, uh, early baseball card and Magic Gathering guy. And so was, was collecting those. And then uh, when Bitcoin emerged in 2010, uh, started buying Bitcoin very early on at around $10 a coin. Wow. Uh, went to some of the very early Bitcoin conferences in San Jose, and there were probably about a dozen of us at that point. I was very fortunate to be going at that point to the Bay Area, um, working on SoFi, and then attending GSB uh, for the Sloan program there. And it was just all happening around that 2010 to 2012 timeframe. And so, you know, started buying Bitcoin very early uh, with a fundamental belief in the underlying technology and, you know, certainly uh, some, some inherent belief in, in the currency and, and the gold aspects of that as well. Um, so those were kind of two two areas. Long only, certainly, uh, I actually uh, was a fairly early adopter of robo-advisory initially uh, with Schwab Intelligence portfolios, actually, um, versus Betterment or Wealthfront or the like. I happen to be a Schwab customer uh, from a legacy perspective. And I was just like, I don't want to have to deal with this. And it was a set it and forget it type approach with some, some tax efficiencies. You know, beyond that, not a lot in the real estate space outside of you know my personal holdings and uh, you know some work I did around the the startup world and looking at real estate opportunities, particularly as it relates to fractional ownership and so forth. At SoFi, um, we were obviously heavy in the mortgage world and, and looking at ways to make that process easier. But yeah, on the on the professional side, it's really been 
you know, strictly uh, direct investments into private companies at all stages from pre-seed uh, through to pre-IPO. Obviously, my day-to-day is in fintech, but I have done some personal investments from an angel perspective. Our rule here at Fin as an RIA is, is, is very clear on that. It obviously has to be pre-approved, but it can't have anything to do with fintech. Um, so my investments in, in, uh, on the angel side and my PA, I've really been around fitness. So I'm an investor in Tonal uh, Entertainment. I'm an investor uh, along with my wife in a company called Catch Data, um, K-A-T-C-H. Uh, really interesting business in light of Netflix earnings announcement today. Um, they're really focused on entertainment data, particularly as it relates to PA budgets. And then third is in org tech with things like Calendly and things that you know we kind of take for granted today, but I always geeked out on because I'm kind of an organizational nerd. So um, you know, those are how I think about the world now is it's fintech out of our, our out of our strategies at Fin. Uh, and then on the personal side, really just things that I, I find intellectually interesting. So we're gonna go back to organizational nerd in just a second, but you mentioned some magic gathering and sports cards. Like what years are we talking about here? What kind of cards do you remember? Yeah, so uh, baseball cards were first. That was in the 80s. Uh, kind of lost interest in that in the early 90s when I got into to magic and uh, uh, kind of games in general, Warhammer and so forth. Um, was not a big video game player, uh, interestingly. I really liked uh, the team-based and or competitive card games. Uh, and or board games. And I grew up playing board games and had a very competitive family, still do. Which board game would be your go-to competitive board game? Uh, a lot of Risk, a lot of Monopoly. And then these days, my wife and I play a ton of card games. Usually, when we're out having dinner or having drinks, you'll, we always bring a deck of cards everywhere. Uh, and we play games like Sevens. Uh, there's a game called Golf that we really like. And then we also bring Monopoly Go. So I still play Monopoly, but in card form and highly recommend if anybody hasn't played Monopoly Go, check it out. It's awesome. Um, and then, you know, frankly, in the 2000s, got into Settlers. So played a lot of Settlers, still do the video games, not very good. Um, I still much prefer the board game. Video games, like just totally hackable. Um, so we definitely uh, prefer the board game. And I think game playing, uh, so both on the board side, and then I was an athlete um, growing up, I played soccer and tennis. And, and then, you know, the other board game I'm, I'm more kind of well known for is uh, chess. Uh, so I was captain of the Duke chess team for four years. Finn actually sponsors the Duke chess team today um, to give them money to make sure they can go to tournaments, hire a coach and so forth. Um, so it's still a big part of my, my life. So if you had to uh, pick only one of these, and I'm sure you're going to want all, but uh, that was most valuable to who you are today. Is it, you know, the Magic the Gathering cards and games? Is it the Risk games or is it Sevens and the card games or is it chess? It's definitely chess. So I, I played chess the longest and I spent the most time studying the game and the theory. Uh, and I think it can fundamentally change lives. And I was a part of a board. Fortunately, we had to sell the IP in the middle of COVID called First Move. Magnus Carlson was the chairman. Uh, and the idea was to put chess into third grade ca- classrooms. The discipline that you get from studying and understanding chess and, and the theory and uh, the pattern recognition and so forth is so significant. The sportsmanship, knowing, learning how to lose, um, learning how to recover from that and uh, understanding what you might have missed and building from that is, is so fundamental. And uh, we still have a chess board. I have two chess boards in this room here, every office at Finn. Uh, and it's been a, a big part of, of the team's life here and, and certainly something I play online. I don't play as competitively as I used to. But when I got to Duke in 99, I didn't have a chess team. Uh, and I, I thought that was kind of fundamentally uh, a gap and uh, built it with uh, some friends. And it's now one, one of the top programs in the country. So uh, really proud of that uh, history. And you know, certainly now we're big sponsors of, of the team and, and we'll be in, into perpetuity. That's great. And from your personal account perspective, are you investing much into collectibles, art, or crypto? You know, uh, on the crypto side, have continued to buy layer ones that I think are game-changing. So bought ETH very early, bought Solana very early, 
I have not gotten into the NFT uh, world. That's not to say that I think NFTs, you know, don't have a future in our ecosystem. I just think they'll look very different than they are today. I think the utility of owning, you know, effectively graphic digital art has been, you know, very much overblown. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the Board Apes Club and so forth, the wild novel is more fad than durable. Um, but I do like the idea of fractionalizing ownership, tokenizing assets. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. So in the art world, there are blockchain companies that are allowing artists to produce a piece of art day one and sell it for, let's say, $10,000 to be able to create traceability on chain of that piece of art so that in 10 years, when it gets sold for hopefully $10 million, that artist retains some kind of residual right to a share of those profits as he or she should, right? And so I do think there's some huge opportunities in the art world, in the collectibles world um, for blockchain. Um, and in terms of my other interests, I, I no longer collect cards or the like. I don't, I don't have a lot of collectibles. I'm not a car guy. So unfortunately, that part of my life is, is probably lesser. Although I would say, I guess a former collectible is just really interesting chess sets. Sure. So I've got a number of chess sets from you know hundreds and hundreds of years ago that are just really amazing antiques. Um, it's really cool. Where do you pick up something like that? Is that an, at an auction? Where, where do you find some of that? Mostly eBay, actually. Okay. Um, and, and sometimes you'll see them in estate sales um, where you know there's a chessboard or old chessboard listed. You have to do a little bit digging to make sure it's not just an old plastic set. Um, but you'll find just amazingly cool jade and or uh, stone or marble sets that are look cool, but also you can actually play on and have an interesting experience with. And there's some history, both in the game, obviously, and the pieces you're playing with, which uh, add to the, uh, the sensory experience. So the, the last question about your personal investing, which is obviously you probably have a decent amount of exposure through your own fund and through your own investments into equities, pre-IPO, venture, etc., how do you think about diversification into other asset classes in alts in a structured way? Or is the answer you don't? And you just opportunistically will invest into whatever, but really it's not too much of your portfolio. So uh, on the alt side, I was a, obviously a team member at SoFi. I've got SoFi exposure. My wife was an executive at a firm. We have a firm exposure. Uh, and on the equity side, I tend to be pretty diversified away from fintech in my personal portfolios. I, I have an uh, investment manager that, that handles that day-to-day -day for me. That allows me to keep arm's length just vis-a-vis -vis our RIA status, which is super important. But he and the team tend to be looking at healthcare, uh, biotech, uh, commodities, and then um, international. So I, I don't have a ton of TMT exposure uh, on the personal asset side. And then, as I mentioned, as it relates to traditional alternatives, I don't have LP positions uh, on a personal basis. Uh, as a GP, just feels like I should be you know, doing that work myself. We do at the firm, though, however, take LP positions out of our management company. And that's helpful to us in just... Uh, in terms of creating partnerships. And so we actually have made five investments um, as a firm into other funds. Um, and those were, in most cases, uh, four out of the five cases, um, actually, uh, situations where I was an emerging manager in 2018 uh, and nobody helped me out. <laughs> I had a lot of sweat equity to build this firm. And uh, when I saw some emerging managers spinning out uh, of places like Andreessen and so forth, and they were starting their own funds, I was like, look, I'd love to, love to contribute in some way to your journey. Uh, I think you're a smart investor. I think you add value to the portfolio uh, and you're a former operator. So we are very much of the mind that the best VCs are former operators. We don't hire non-former operators on our team. And that's a that comes from a place of underwriting edge, but also credibility and sitting down across from entrepreneurs and knowing what it's been like to walk miles in their shoes or thousands of miles in my case. Uh, and then lastly, actually being able to add value. Um, one of the reasons I started Finn is that I looked across the landscape, looked at our cap table at SoFi and the other cap tables I helped uh, manage and it was just like, you know, 90% of the plus of the VCs on this list effectively reach out to us every quarter for financials. And that's about it, right? They don't do anything else for us. And so for me, that was sad. And I wanted to create a fundamental operating playbook that was repeatable uh, and actually move the needle from entre uh, with entrepreneurs. We also 
to prove that, I said, okay, well, that's nice. You can say you're going to add value. You can put an operating playbook in place. You can you can actually hire people. We have dedicated resources on our platform team that all they do all day, every day is help our portfolio. But you also have to measure that. And so we've instituted a very simple uh, version of the net promoter score in uh, on a quarterly basis where we ask our CEOs, would you recommend us to another entrepreneur as an investor, you know, zero through 10? Um, and we've always been between a nine and a 10, last quarter we were at a 95 uh, or 9.5. And, and that's that's huge, right? So for me, that's one of the hugest, the biggest metrics that I look at is, are we adding value beyond capital? And if we're not, we need to change something. Yeah, I love that you went there. That was going to be actually one of my questions about having that operator background and using that as an edge. So awesome that you covered that. Can we segue that into um, what you kind of already did, but like, why create Fin Capital, right? 2018 is, you know, you had so much operator experience. What was the opportunity that you saw? And obviously you're doing a good job now because you've gone to raise more capital and have great results. So can you just paint the picture before Fin Capital existed, how you're thinking about that chess move? Yeah, great question. So in, uh, I was running SoFi Ventures and built SoFi Ventures in 2017. I stayed on to, to help the interim management team, interim CEO, interim CFO, write the ship a little bit, help uh, find a new team, management team turned over at the end of 2017, CEO, obviously that became Anthony Noto. And it was clear to me, once once you get into venture, it's, it's hard to go back to operating. And I had been in venture for you know three, four years at that point with a mix of operating back at SoFi where I was doing some corporate development and M&A work. Um, some IPO prep work, and then uh, the venture work. And uh, I just continued to be passionate about working with entrepreneurs, founders, and, and helping them realize their vision. And what I started seeing while I was at SoFi is there's some great fintech specialists that I have a, a significant amount of, uh, of respect for, but they were all focusing on consumer and SMB-oriented models. And you know, they were doing that predominantly in the U.S., but as those spaces or particular areas became saturated, they were expanding into the U.K., Europe, and Latin America, and, and elsewhere, right? Some were going into India and Southeast Asia. And I said, well, two things. One is there's this whole world of B2B fintech that I think is uh, potentially the, the most attractive greenfields for the next decade plus, number one. Number two, you know, I don't have any investment edge in places like India, Southeast Asia, and so forth. And so underwriting businesses and feeling comfortable investing OPM into those types of companies is, is, is really troubling to me. Number three, going back to- the- Sorry, OPM is other people's money? Other people's money, exactly. All right, just making sure everybody on the same page. <laughs> yeah. And so, and then the third piece was, I didn't see anybody who had a specific operating playbook for their companies. Um, but particularly for the B2B trends that were emerging. So um, in 2015, we got Stripe. Um, we had Plaid around that time. There was just so many businesses emerging, servicing other companies. There are really two types of B2B businesses that have emerged. One is a take rate business, right? So they're taking some kind of revenue share of the volume running through their technology. That could be on payments um, where they're getting a piece of interchange or it could be on uh, you know, lending spreads or, or the like, it could be a marketplace business. There's lots of take rate businesses out there. I think the challenges we've seen from take rate businesses, uh, Square, now Block uh, being a good example, Marketa being a good example, is that you've seen take rate compression. You've seen the opportunity for competition to enter those markets. And you've seen real challenges in then introducing software beyond that core transaction capability. And so I didn't love those business models. I decided that those were business models within the B2B world that were going to struggle. And so we just said the second part of the B2B world is the most attractive, which is enterprise software that also has a take rate. We call that SaaS plus. So it's got to be a SaaS plus business model where they're very passionate about building software for an end consumer. That end consumer is going to be a bank an asset manager, an insurer, and another, other fintechs, um, and then corporates. And then on the corporate side, that's retailers and big tech, right? So that's what we're focused on. Are you building a piece of software serving one of those end customers? And are you then also participating in the upside of that network effect? So for example, Pipe in our portfolio, they're providing software into recurring revenue businesses to provide terrific visibility into analytics. 
integrating into your your SaaS recurring revenue payments uh, uh, subscription provider, your payment software, your operating account, your GL, all those things, and then providing you an analytics view of your business that is is incredibly interesting and, and compelling. And then beyond that, they're also allowing you to securitize those contracts to pull revenue forward as you need it to reinvest in the business. Um, you know, a good public example is Bill.com, right? So they're, they're charging a, a monthly fee for you, you to be able to use their software to handle your AR, your AP, and your invoices. But then they're also making a piece of the interchange and the payments volume on the back end, right? So those are the types of models that we think have the most durability, particularly across cycles like this one. And then secondly, have just been far more embraced by the public markets. And the public markets have not been kind to my alma mater, uh, SoFi, nor any of these pure take rate businesses, um, because they look at it and they see, in most cases, some kind of balance sheet um, and or credit risk. Uh, they see pretty material capital intensity in the business from a customer acquisition perspective. Um, and then third, uh, they see margins that are in the you know kind of teens or 20s. And that doesn't get financial investors, you know, really excited. So that's why we're, you know, really delving into uh, the SaaS Plus orientation and doing it where we see maturity in markets, and that's the U.S., U.K., Europe, and now emerging Latin America, Israel, and Canada. So the SaaS Plus model is super interesting. And then you went there with public markets, you know, reacting not so well in the last few months to maybe other models uh, and multiple compression, et cetera, et cetera. And really fintech, you know, right in your bread baskets, kind of getting crushed, right? I, th I think it's fair to use the word crushed. Um, 10 years ago, people were just on the cutting edge of is fintech even investable? And then 18 months ago, you know, fintech was getting one out of every $4, I think. Totally. And now all of a sudden, things are very different. So you're the expert here. I would love for you to contextualize the market a little bit from a fintech lens. What is happening? Where is it headed from your opinion? So, you know, fintech stocks in the public markets, whether it's consumer SMB or B2B and, and either of those models are down significantly. We're looking at Q2 data now, but that number is probably 70 plus percent. And the businesses that have taken the largest hit have tended to be consumer and SMB first and foremost. And we believe the ones that are going to snap back and have the most resilience when the market does start to recover, which you know I think our expectation is is really second half of next year that IPO markets start to reopen and we get some recovery, likely through some visibility into interest rate reduction uh, and hopefully a lower inflationary environment. Uh, and you know our view is that those B2B businesses and the public markets will snap back uh, in a more resilient and rapid way. I think on the private markets, uh, FT Partners and PitchBook and the NBCA just came out with their data. You know, the, there's a bit of a lag in this in this funding data, obviously, on the private side, just given when rounds close versus when they're announced. But Q2, uh, give or take, is around 30 40% decline in terms of volume. And that's a pretty material change on pacing. Um, Sequoia and Tiger were still the uh, number one and number two players in terms of deployment in Q2. And, you know, uh, from our perspective, we, we certainly uh, lowered our pacing. And that was a function of having raised capital last year, deploying this year, just having a really high bar for new investments and not forcing anything. I tell my team every day that we should be focused on catching falling dollars and not falling knives. And the additional work that you have to do uh, to evaluate that is, is pretty fundamental. There's been a lot of rounds reopened, participated in one or two of those. There's been a lot of down rounds and restructurings. We haven't participated in any of those. We haven't gotten really excited about that. Sorry, I just want to jump in for a second. So there's been a lot of rounds reopened, meaning some, uh, somebody raised money at a, at a previous time at X price. Time has gone by. They probably have grown at some level but the price is still the same. They didn't actually have a markup. So it's kind of just the same price, even though it's a month or a year and a half later. Correct. Uh, so in, in these cases, it's about a three to six month lag. And they said, you know, we've, we've gone to the business. We like the business. We're trying to play offense. We say, hey, look, you raised around in uh, summer of last year or call it Q4. Uh, and most of these deals we did were in Q1. And we said, look, you know, we love what you're doing. Uh, we'd like to put capital work. We think we can add value with our operating playbook. 
Um, if you're willing to reopen the round and the investors are supportive of that in lieu of you going out um, and taking on venture debt or trying to put a safe note in place or the like, let's just do something super clean and, and we'll top you up on that round structure. And, and that's been a way of preempting without you know, taking on candidly an increase in valuation. So those are flat rounds, um, but with very attractive assets. Um, the second. Sorry, I've heard that, you know, flat is the new up from a lot of people. And would you think about it the same way? Because if you think about it as like a public markets drop of 70% in value, then really that valuation that you had previously should be 70% less. So getting flat is you just got a lot of up, right? Correct. That's the way to think about it is that they're still growing into the valuation that was placed on them last year. Fundamentally, they don't deserve that valuation given the reduction in public comps. Um, but we're willing to uh, retain that valuation given the traction progress they've made and the ability to get onto the cap table, get our get the ownership that we would like to see, and then help them accelerate in this environment and give them 24 months of runway. So for us, 24 months is really the focal point from a runway cash position perspective. Um, and that could be reopening around, putting a safe note in place with a reasonable cap and a discount. Uh, adding some venture debt, which you should view as your last dollar. And then fourth, just being really thoughtful about your burn dynamic relative to your revenue and relative to your stage. Um, I, I was seeing, you know, Series A companies last year burning a million and a half to two million a month. And it's kind of like, hey, you know, 500K to 750 should be kind of your sweet spot at that stage. Um, and, you know, Series B, Series C companies, it, it steps up from there. But just being really thought about, thoughtful about your burn profile, about your hiring plans, and, and so forth. And, and so that third category um, I mentioned, I think is the most attractive category, which is in their operating plan, the first half of this year is when they decided to raise. And that, that's just bad timing, right? And so it's a great company, um, terrific opportunity from, from an upside, still a lot of room to run. And they just missed time to market. And that's really unfortunate uh, for them and the existing shareholders, but it's a way for us to play off it. So, you know, one example of that is public now is sum up where, you know, they were talking about a 22 billion euro valuation last year, and, and that became public information in TechCrunch. And, you know, uh, they, they merited it last year because uh, Square was trading at 22 times uh, revenue, right? And uh, some ups profile from a growth and a margin perspective are, are far stronger. Uh, but, you know, we ended up doing the round at, you know, seven and a half. So it, it, it's, it's a really interesting opportunity. And, you know, I think for investors, this is a, a buyer's or investor's market at this point. Um, founders are, are having to be more price takers at this stage. But I think it's very healthy. And I've, I've tried to explain it to a lot of our founders and new investments we've made. Like, look, this is no reflection of my view of your business and the opportunity for upside for all of us here. But I think it's better that you take a look at public comps and, and private comps, take this type of valuation, and the dilution will still, still be attractive to you at this point. Um, but you'll be able to very quickly grow into it. And then your next subsequent round, whether that's an IPO or another round of financing, you know, can be even more meaningful um, because you will have been thoughtful about your growth, about your valuation and so forth. Um, and then on the growth and late stage side, you know, everybody that we're invested in or looking at investing into is very much trying to pull forward profitability. Um, you know, trying to look at, okay, I was growing 60 to 80%. Uh, now growth at 30 to 40 percent is fine, so long as I can, you know, have either EBITDA today um, or light at the end of the tunnel uh, as it relates to being EBITDA positive. So you said for sum up, it was going to be 22x, but then it ended up about 7.5x, and you said that some things have dropped about 70 percent. I mean, all of this sounds like plus minus valuations are let's call it one third of what they were, you know, let's call it a year ago. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, there's a couple of things there. One is focusing on trailing revenue, not giving as much forward credit uh, on management estimates. So I think that's a big part of that equation, right? Is things were getting priced off of, you know, current year or next year's revenue. That is no longer. So that's obviously compressing multiples on a trailing, on a trailing basis. Uh, and, you know, for us, it is 
underwriting to the thesis, first and foremost. We take a very macro top-down thesis orientation to how we evaluate these companies. We need to see a thesis that truly has green fields um, is not kind of retreading or creating a significant amount more competition in the market. Uh, E.g., we need to see venture project equity like return profile in the business. Um, and then, you know, secondly, again, is that value add. So for us, we are backed by a lot of banks, asset managers, insurers, wealth managers, and other fintechs um, who we can work with our companies on commercial and business development deals. And then we have a head of corporate development who full time looks at raising capital for our companies on the equity and the debt side, helps them with inbound, outbound M&A, and then supports IPO readiness. And so you know, that is a big bar for us. Um, the other bar that we do integrate into our model from a DD standpoint is, is ESG. Um, so we bake ESG metrics into our upfront evaluation of that business uh, and then the ongoing monitoring. We're UMPRI signatory. We're not ESG or, or uh, I'll call it social impact investors prima facie. You don't need to see a, a double bottom line in that business. We're still uh, indexing towards returns. But our view is that if they're making progress on those ESG metrics, uh, they're going to be better, more long-term durable businesses. So as your team is doing diligence and evaluating companies, can you share with me, let's call it three trends that you're trying to look for or invest into? Today's market is obviously different than 2018 when you started. So if you could share with the audience, what are three interesting trends right now in your space? I would say a couple things. Um, one is picks and shovels in Web3 and blockchain. So in that world, we think about it as effectively replicating the traditional asset management and bank worlds in the digital world. Um, so that includes custody, back office, middle office, and front office. Um, and so if you think about that from a blockchain perspective, we've you know announced investments in Prime Trust, in Circle, in Talos, those all touch different aspects of that you know, traditional asset management banking world that you know, they have the capabilities tech stack and domain expertise to be able to solve for crypto and digital assets, whether those are stable coins, currencies, or tokens. And then the second trend that we're excited about is a, is a little less uh, exciting from, a, from a, a space standpoint. I call it boring fintech, but this is the, the CFO tech stack. So we all have CFOs uh, at the end of the day, and they've been woefully underinvested in as it relates to their technology stacks. Like there's not been a lot of innovation since QuickBooks. And so I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of opportunity there, whether that's in the kind of team pay Brex ramp world, which is uh, procure to pay uh, CFO expense management tools and so forth. Um, whether that's in next generation ERP and accounting at P&A capabilities. There's a huge amount of innovation happening happening there, and it's a universal need, right? There's CFOs in every single business. There's treasury and finance functions in every business. Um, we invested in Travada recently um, that was announced, and that's really in the treasury and corporate management side of the equation and, and yield efficiency, uh, partnering with the banks uh, in particular. And then I would say, you know, the third area that we've been spending a lot of time in, um, I would broadly call enabling tech and infrastructure. These are all the horizontal opportunities. Some of these look like traditional enterprise software because they are, but their biggest customer bases happen to be in the industries that we're investing in, which we can have underwriting edge around. Um, so one great example in our portfolio is Natomi. Uh, Natomi is the leading provider in, in our, our minds in uh, customer success automation. Uh, Omnichannel, so email, chatbot, text message, social, uh, IVR assisted, et cetera. And they're working with, with everybody from Rex to uh, Southwest and Disney, right? So like a really broad, expansive set of relationships, but all trying to solve for this digital customer experience. The banks and others have always been focused on the onboarding of customers digitally and uh, getting that right as opposed to sending you a PDF or having you come into a branch. Well, that's cool, but that's 1% of the customer's life. What about the other 99%, right? And so um, we, we really like that opportunity. And there's things like customer success automation and serving customers digitally. There's cloud migration in this category. There's big data analytics, and then there's reg tech. 
reg tech could be cyber fraud um, uh, or uh, KYC ML type capabilities and so forth. And so that broad category, as the industry continues to evolve, I think will be one of the biggest categories. My favorite stat in, in the space is that the banks this year will spend about one and a half trillion dollars on technology. They're number one in the world in spend. And that's a Gartner data point. And that's bigger than any government, any other industry. And yet less than 10% of the bank's data is in the cloud. And that's not just public clouds, that's uh, potentially private clouds as well, right? So they're, they're first in spend and dead last uh, in cloud adoption, even less than the DMV. And that's super, super uh, pathetic. And it gives us a huge opportunity because the only way to cross that chasm is through uh, enterprise SaaS. And so, you know, that's, that comes back to, you know, why we're so excited about the space, why we think it's durable long term from a trend perspective, um, and, you know, why our companies, and we have over, over 100 companies now, um, and we think, you know, uh, all of them are approaching this, these problem sets uh, from different vantage points. Great. I want to bring something back that you said a little while ago, organizational nerd. How does that manifest for you as running Fin Capital, and how does it help? Yeah, so I would say that um, you know I was an early adopter of Calendly, early adopter of a program called Boomerang, um, which is my favorite email add-on. And uh, you know, Boomerang for me is it's a huge organizational capability because it integrates into the calendar. You can share calendar availability. Uh, and it integrates into your email. So if you send an email and somebody doesn't respond, it boomerangs back to you. And that makes sure that I have inbox zero at, at largely all times. I find boomerang to be a, a stronger capability, by the way, than, than superhumans. Not to knock on superhuman, but it, it is a cool email app. I trialed it and I was like, ah, it's not really giving me everything I need. And, and that was really the boomerang capability and, and, and other things. Um, the best standalone email app I've seen uh, is Spark, um, just Spark Mail. They have a, they have a, now finally have a both a PC and Mac OS and iPhone app, and that's the cleanest email app I've ever seen. It's owned by Riedel. Um, if any, if the CEO of Riedel is reading this or listening to this, I should say, please contact me. I would, I would love to buy your company. Uh, it's, it's a, the coolest email app I've ever seen. And so all of those, I just love those types of things. Uh, there's a, a team sharing, uh, note sharing app called Hugo, which I'll plug. I think that's really, really cool. It allows you, it integrates into your calendar and allows you to take notes by calendar invite, um, which keeps you super organized. We ended up building our own platform called Lighthouse, um, which we integrated into Affinity. And Lighthouse.ai is our effectively our OS. It helps us source analyze and assess and monitor our portfolio. Uh, and candidly, there just wasn't much out there for, for VCs in the way of, of really strong end-to-end technology. And so we ended up building it ourselves, which has been the answer, by the way, for Sequoia, Co2, and a lot of, of our, our other uh, uh, compatriots in the space. And um, there's definitely an opportunity there, I think, for founders who are interested in trying to solve some of those problems. Um, today, I do have an EA who's doing who's great and works with me mainly on the calendaring and the travel side. But in terms of organizing my to-do list and kind of structuring my day now with, you know, 26 people, you know, a billion plus under management um, and, you know, 100 companies, all kinds of functions uh, around our firm. We have three private funds and a public strategy. You know, it's, it's, it keeps, it makes sure that you're very focused and you're absolutely ruthless with your calendar. <laughs> That's great. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, people want to know how you get so much accomplished. So that is definitely helpful. One of the things you mentioned a little while back, which I don't want to lose on, is that you essentially are predicting that the second half of 23 is when things are going to start coming back, inflation coming down, potentially rates coming down. Um, I want to, you know, expand on that in a second. But you did say there's going to be the SaaS plus model, you know, is going to do better for the B2B companies. Can you give me a couple of examples of two or three companies in the public markets? Who are those companies that we can watch out for and maybe invest into them? I think Bill.com is, is one that uh, everybody should be keeping an eye out on. I like that model. I love the management team. I've known Renee for a long time. And I think they have made some very smart acquisitions, uh, a la Divi and Invoice to Go. And those are really, really interesting businesses that are natural adjacencies and allow them to add software and take rate uh, to their business model. 
And that focus has led them to, I think, being undervalued in the public markets. They've had a couple of pops here recently, as has you know, most of the fintech market in the last couple of days. Um, but I still think dramatically undervalued. I think Shopify is a great example here as well, right? So they're selling software and services and the backend capabilities and so forth into merchants. And then obviously they're taking a piece of take rate in partnership with Stripe. Uh, and there'll be other capabilities, e.g. lending, insurance, and so forth, that they can layer into that merchant uh, opportunity. Um, so we really view that as software first, take rate second. Um, and uh, I think there's a, a, a lot of room to run and upside in Shopify as well. And then, you know, I would say of the other players in the market, those are really the two that I could have like some level of conviction on. The, the challenge now with most of the public fintech names like Square, um, like Blend and so forth is they've, they've all come under a pretty significant pressure uh, and margin compression, uh, take rate compression and so forth. And that that is, I think, really problematic from a recovery perspective. They have a higher degree of inflation sensitivity, higher degree of interest rate sensitivity versus Shopify and Bill that you know, are, are more insulated. Certainly, Shopify will ultimately touch end consumers. End consumers with inflationary concerns may have, you know, some, some rotation um, in their their baskets, and obviously uh, ratcheting down their spend. Although that hasn't proven out in the credit picture, right? We're at around nine hundred billion in, in credit outstanding now, back uh, back above pre-pandemic levels. So, you know, while consumer confidence is down, credit is up, and and so that's a good good signal for those merchants. Um, just needs to be Shopify. So those. Those would be the two that I would say, you know, if you're going to look heavily at investing in fintech in the public markets, um, you know, are going to snap back, I think, the fastest. Um, and uh, we're, you know, would be, we would be excited to invest in, in the public markets. We don't have a public fund, uh, but uh, uh, certainly, uh, you know, those would be interesting. And what um, broadly is your perspective on the market and where it's headed? So can you paint a little bit more of what you think about where things are headed in the next 18 months? So we're going to be putting out our Q3 Navigator and releasing it publicly in September. Um, so a bit of a preview on that. But, uh, you know, we think that obviously in, inflation got out of control. Part of that was PPP, part of that was geopolitical in nature with obviously oil prices spiking as a result of the Ukrainian-Russia uh, issues, um, the fact that our country has ratcheted our own oil production back down. Um, you know, that has put an upward pressure on prices. And our biggest fear, I think, is you continue to, to raise rates, growth stalls, and you have inflation, you get into a stagflationary environment in Q4. I think that's our biggest concern. I think, you know, Powell has ratcheted up very quickly, but it was, it was too little, it was too little too late, right? So this really should have started in Q4 of last year um, with visibility into, you know, the inflationary picture. And they hadn't really accounted for geopolitical tail risk, right? So uh, the Russia-Ukraine issues have created a, a knock-on effect, um, and that's been really problematic for, for core inflation. I think that Powell increases, you know, most people are saying three to three and a half percent on interest rates. And then we start to, to get to some pullback on interest rates. And as soon as they create some signal around that, obviously that's going to improve everybody's DCF analysis in, in the public markets. That's going to have an upward effect on public prices. And hopefully that will come with you know, lesser uh, issues on the inflation side, a stronger consumer confidence index. Um, and my hope is, you know, strong credit and balance sheet profiles, both at the banks um, and at the individual consumer level. We don't see runoff or, or credit losses or, or big spikes in those issues as well. Um, so the perfect, you know, the ideal time frame would be first half, second half of next year, more likely when IPO windows reopen, you start to get more liquidity back in the system. And that gets recycled into more private market investing, more LP liquidity, uh, and obviously more LP checks, hopefully for the GPs that merit them. And what I'm emphasizing to our team is we've had a couple exits as a firm. That's, that's great. But um, in order to really merit raising more capital next year, both for ourselves and the rest of the ecosystem, you need to be able to produce uh, liquidity and realizations. 
uh, I said something at a conference the other day that just kind of came to me, which is, you know, Nero Rubini said in 2008, you can't eat an iPhone. Well, you can't eat unrealized paper games. You just can't, right? And so I think for LPs, they should be demanding those realizations um, because you can't really prove that your strategy is working. You can produce consistent alpha unless, quite frankly, you can produce real realizations. And that's a function of how the M&A and LBO and IPO markets are reacting to the types of businesses you're investing, right? Um, and for us, we've really centered our strategy around greenfield opportunities, certainly, but also you know, what's going to drive the best outcomes for our founders, our investors, and our team from a legacy and impact standpoint. And that's why we've just you know, completely focused on this one part of the Venn diagram within FinTech. Great. So we're almost done here. We like to finish with a couple of fun questions, which is one, um, what do you like to listen to? What do you like to watch? What do you like to read? Like, how uh, do people listening to you now get as smart as you and know as much as you? Like, what are some of those examples? Yeah. So I, ironically, I don't, I don't listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs> I just don't. I, I, for me, my, my brain is so active that if I'm listening to a podcast, I start thinking about 20 different things or ripping off of the podcast. Uh, so I tend to read uh, largely Wall Street Journal and FT every single weekend, um, and both the paper version and, and, a, and a Kindle version. Uh, I read a lot of CIA and mystery novels. That's kind of my, my, my brain kind of turning off a little bit, and I read those before bed every night. Uh, and then in the mornings, I go to the gym six days a week in the mornings. Um, I can't work out at night. I can only work out in the mornings. And there, I'm typically listening to CNBC, a healthy dose of, you know, kind of public markets, macro, and then, you know, just some, some fun things that are creating creativity. Uh, on the fintech side of the world, I, I read all, all of the, my sub stack is, is pretty full uh, of, you know, things like Linus. Uh, I think he's, he's super sharp. Spectre Monitor. Um, let's see what else. I'm going to look at my inbox here and cheat a little bit. What have I read recently? Yeah, like uh, basically all of the fintech rags I read all the time. Some of it interesting, some of it not. <laughs> but you know, for me, it's just like I want to make sure that I'm I'm contributing back to the ecosystem, and and certainly um, commenting on LinkedIn, providing my perspective, and so forth. So I, I'm really going to read anything that's coming out related to fintech um, to get other people's perspectives because. You know, for us, we're spending a lot of time on thesis development. We're doing that mainly, though, through our own experience and talking to customers. Um, and those customers are the ones I mentioned earlier. And, and we spent a lot of our time doing that. We talked to academics. So, for example, I've been involved with the, the Duke FinTech Master's Program. Um, you know, what is academia seeing that we might not be seeing? Um, what are the incubators and accelerators seeing, right? Um, I do a lot of that type of work that's just very hands-on and direct versus, you know, reading it in a book. I like being out in the field. And then um, thank you for sharing that. What is one investment? And you kind of already shared a little bit for a second half of next year, but uh, we always ask this question, which is what is one investment that you would recommend that three years from now, when we have you back on the show and, you know, we'll try to get you on next year anyway, but three years from now, when we have you on the show, we'll get to say this worked or it didn't work. What's a real investment into a real alt or a real company into a real situation, product, collectible, whatever you want, anything? Well, I'd say it's a public one, which is Circle, right? So we we just participated in the Series F of Circle. It's publicly announced with BlackRock, Fidelity, and Marshall Waste. There are only four of us in the round. And you know, we did a lot of work on this investment uh, in the second half of last year. We really struggled. Our stable coin's going to be a thing. I think we got very comfortable there and highly convicted that stable coins have the opportunity be the future of commerce. Um, nobody's going to buy pizza with Bitcoin anymore, right? So you need a stable coin to uh, transact in an e-commerce or offline setting. Um, you need stable coins for remittances, uh, consumer peer-to-peer. -peer. But I also believe stablecoin can play a role in replacing Swift and execute on what Ripple uh, had ultimately uh, envisioned. Uh, and then lastly, they have a place in asset management and yield, right, in the future. So our view is that stablecoins are here to stay, and, and they're going to be probably uh, one of the most exciting and transformative, if not the most transformative aspects of the digital asset space. 
And then secondly, the thing we had to believe is Circle was going to be the winner. And that took a lot of work, right? Um, I, we inherently viewed algo coins as problematic, um, you know, black box, if you will, in nature. And we could just never get comfortable that those were going to retain their shape and, and be able to, to, to maintain peg to the dollar. Uh, and sure enough, you know, after we invested <laughs> three, four months later, uh, that crude prescient where Terra Luna obviously falls apart, um, Tether is, you know, has obviously had outflows. Um, Tether has like a dozen people on the team and is not really an institutional grade stablecoin in our minds and, and kind of the work we had done up front. We had some concerns about the long-term viability of that business. So we said, yeah, USDC is going to be the future. We really like Jeremy and the team uh, and, and what they built, the culture they built, and frankly, the posture that they've taken um, to regulators, which is we want to be thought leaders, we want to be regulated, and we want to ask for permission versus forgiveness. And I just think that's the, the optimal position to be in. If the digital asset world is going to move into the TradFi uh, world and be a part of our core uh, GDP and a part of our core economy, that's the type of approach that needs to take place. So that's the kind of uh, bet. It's public, so it can be purchased. Uh, it's currently uh, in a DSPAC process, trades under CND. And I think it's a you know really su super solid uh, opportunity. And I, my hope is three years later, you know, uh, what you would have to believe in terms of the things I outlined proved to be correct. Awesome. Uh, all great answers. And thank you for sharing all that. This has been a really incredible conversation. You took us all the way from 2010 with Bitcoin, you at a young age, getting into chess. You love playing cards, even with your wife. You built out the chess team at Duke, which is obviously now crushing it, which is awesome. You had your unique point of view on B2B, which you have the SaaS Plus model. You're an organizational nerd and was able to bring that uh, to your portfolio and to build out your organization even better. I love that you put yourself on the spot and said that you know the economy is challenged right now. But you do think it's going to turn around in the second half of 23. You're telling your folks to find falling dollars, not falling knives. And you gave us your three trends, which is, you know, picks and shovels of Web3, the CFO tech stack and enabling technology. Prices are down to one third than they were from before. So pull that profitability forward and you put your money where your mouth is with Bill.com, Shopify and Circle. So thank you so much, Logan. That was great. Thanks a lot. Great to be here. Have a good one. You too. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com. <laughs>